You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is December. Yes, it is. Which means we get to take a look at searching the scriptures in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness, here to dig into God's Word with us in the December issue. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Good to have you here. Happy December. Happy Advent. Yeah. Same to you guys. Mm-hmm. We are taking a look at the December issue. That's correct. The theme is a little bit heady for a Christmas issue, to be frank, but I think it's going to be helpful for people to think through some of these things, probably before they're all stuffed for Christmas and can't think straight, that we're actually dealing with anthropology and Lutheran anthropology. How does a Lutheran look at what it means to be a man? And what does our theology have to say about being a man? And then all of this, particularly in light of of the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ, since the connection to Christmas. And what you'll find, and what is most fascinating, Adam Hensley in his article really hit this hard, is that when you do anthropology from any other perspective, you have to look at other men to determine what a man is. But as the people of God, as Lutherans, as Christians, we actually look toward God to define and to understand what a man is. And that is, of course, most fully fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the theme for the... But I also have a couple of other announcements. So first off, this could be either good news or bad news, depending on how you think about this. But this will be my last issue with you, or last recording with you for a while, because next year we have the Reverend Tony Oliphant doing all of the searching scriptures, and you'll be able to talk with him. He's a delightful guy, excellent pastor, and a great Bible study writer as well. So he's going to be taking you through the book of Philippians. So look forward to that. The other announcement is a format change. So for those of you who love the lines to write your answers on, I have to apologize. We're (laughs) removing those. (laughs) They're not long enough anyway. They're not long enough anyway. My answers won't fit in them. Yeah, our answers don't fit in them. And so we're removing them to give Pastor Oliphant more space to to do more study and more teaching and instruction. So if you want to write down your answers, you're just going to have to have an extra sheet of paper on hand. But I mean, nobody likes writing on magazine paper anyways. So we took the lines out. It's just questions and you'll have to keep your answer, track your answers on your own. What is the theme for searching the scripture this month? So this month we are concluding the book of Ephesians, and so we're going to finish up Paul's discussion of submission to one another, submission within the hierarchy that he has given us, in which we find ourselves, and we're going to deal first with children and parents, and then bond servants or slaves and masters, and then we're going to conclude with uh, Paul's instruction on the uh, armor of God standing firm and final greetings. So it's kind of, it appears miscellaneous, but it's a great way of wrapping up the epistle. All right, question one. Let's do it. Read Ephesians 5, verse 21, and Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Recall from last month's study how Ephesians 5, verse 21 governs this passage. How are we to understand the relationship between fathers and children? How does it differ from the relationship between husbands and wives? So I have to say, I was preparing this morning, and the other thing with this last chapter of Ephesians is that this is great territory for rants from Pastor Askin. So <laughs> just giving you a little bit of heads up and warning here that this is likely to occur a couple of times. <laughs> All right, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is uh, introducing this theme of submission and ordering one's life. He begins, as we talked last week, with the submission or the ordering of the family in terms of husband and wife and how the husband orders himself under under God as the wife orders herself under the husband and this is done in submission as she submits as the church submits to Christ and so forth and puts them within this structure, this hierarchy, this order. 
Well, the same structure also takes place and is present in the ordering of children and parents, and then later on in slaves and masters. So that's Ephesians 5.21. Let's actually get to the text where St. Paul teaches children. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first off, a couple of really fascinating things to to think about here. This letter, this epistle of Paul, was to be read within the context of the divine service. So he's actually addressing children like in the sermon, right? So Paul's actually, you can see him, right? Husbands, do this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives because Christ loved the church. And then you can see him looking at the kids in the front row. Children! Obey your parents, right? He sees them there in the congregation, and he treats them as fellow believers in Christ as, and as those who are to live as believers in Christ, okay? So we have children here gathered to receive this, and what does he teach them? He teaches them to obey their parents, order your life with your parents in a godly way. So this term obey here has a definite sense of hearing. It's an audible word in the sense of listen to what your parents are saying and obey what they have said, right? Take heed to what they are saying and be obedient to it. And then he ties this, of course, to the fourth commandment. What you also see here then is the corollary responsibility of fathers to teach their children, right? Do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So once again, there's these two pieces to this ordering and the structure, right? Children are to obey their parents. At the same time, the father has a duty, a responsibility to teach and instruct his children and to discipline his children in the way of the Lord. Now, I have very little patience with this sometimes. This is one of the rants. I told you it was coming. Fathers who fail to discipline their children, Mm. I have very little patience for this. It is one of your duties as the father to discipline your children and to see that they are brought up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. The failure to do this is a failure. To, it is a sinful failure to fulfill the vocation that God has placed you in as a father. Right? So this is something you take very seriously. Now, this term discipline is not simply a term of like negative punishment, but also has a positive aspect of it too, right? Discipline. Where, where do we get other words related to discipline? Disciple. Yeah, exactly. Hey. Right. And so this is neatly, this is why Paul actually includes both discipline and instruction. The corollary to discipline is, of course, discipline, right? We're not going, I'm not saying that there isn't the negative punishment side of this thing, right? You have clear teachings in Hebrews, for instance, where a writer to the Hebrews talks about discipline and how it is painful for a time, and yet fathers do it out of love for us. That if they didn't do it, right? Here's the other deal. If they don't discipline in this way, they don't actually love you, right? That's what actually he says. So there is, of course, that negative side, but there's also the positive side, which is to say fathers you have a duty to teach your children and to disciple them in the way of the Lord. That is, you have a duty to sit around the table, the dinner table, together while you're eating and talk about the Word of God, what you believe and why you believe it. You have a duty and an obligation to your family given to you by God to do devotions with them, to teach them the Word of God, to teach them the catechism. The failure to do this is a failure of your to fulfill the vocation God has given you as a father and as a husband, right? So in order to do this, what do you as the father need to be doing? Well, you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be in Bible class on Sunday morning. This is a really fascinating. Have you guys, this is an old study. Have you seen the study about attendance or tr- I should say attendance habits of fathers and mothers in relation to the children? Oh, yeah. Did, are you familiar with that? study? A, a longitudinal study from Vernon Bankston, I think. 
Well, I actually need to find the study. Somebody asked me for it. I actually need to find it again. <laughs> oh. But the summary of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the summary of it is the father's attendance at church is a greater indicator, more significant indicator of the children's long-term presence in church than the mother's. This is not to say mothers aren't to be involved. The point is fathers have a duty, and this is inherent in the nature of the family, to be there as the spiritual guide and leader of the family to be teaching and instructing their children. So you need to be in church. You need to be in Bible class so that during the week when you sit down to dinner, guess what? You have something to say about the Word of God to teach your children in this most glorious thing. There was also another element to that study, another characteristic of the father, the relationship of the children to, or the father to the children, in addition to father's presence and Mm -hmm. participation in worship in the congregational life. Children were more likely to persist in that faith tradition or that confession of faith if they had a perceived warm relationship with their father. Ah, so hence also then tying yes. this right back to as probably where you're going and I'm interrupting. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. But that, yeah, exactly. Do not provoke your children to anger. That's mm. the point there, right? So this idea of discipline is not, once again, purely negative, make sure they're always towing the line, but rather discipling, teaching them in the instruction of the Lord, keeping them in line, of course, but at the same time doing this in a godly way that actually builds them up, teaches them the faith, right? Mm. And this is where, once again, being in church in the divine service, hearing the proper distinction between law and gospel also helps fathers do this in their own home. Right? Well, how do you learn how to teach your children what the law and the gospel is and how this affects their lives and how they are to remain obedient to the law and they do this out of the new life they have in the gospel? You learn that by being in, present in church on Sunday, hearing the sermon, and then coming home and talking to your children about the sermon. My children know that in the van on the way home, the question I'm going to ask, so what did pastor say in the sermon today, right? And we're going to talk about it. Well, that's what pa- fathers need to be doing as well. They need to be in church, hearing the sermon, talking about it with their children. Well, we have successfully made it through one of seven questions in the first segment. We have six more to go in the next segment. We'll continue our conversation searching the scriptures in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is December. We are taking a look at the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, Searching the Scripture with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. We are in Ephesians 5 and 6 today, Mm -hmm. moving mostly into chapter 6. We have worked our way through question 1. We have a few more to go. Question 2. Read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Since 2011, the ESV uses the word bondservant for the word traditionally translated as slave. What sort of implication does the word slave have in our modern culture? How does this passage speak of slavery? All right. So we'll read the passage here. Bondservants, this is Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Bondservants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So the reason I asked this question here and specifically highlighted the term bondservant is in previous ages, this would have been prior to 2011 in the ESV and then obviously in other translations as well, this term bondservant would have been translated as slave. And uh, and so the passage would have read, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, this causes in our modern context a little bit of consternation as we think about Paul. He's not actually condemning slavery here. He's actually saying, obey your masters. Well, in the as we think about in our American context, when we think of slave uh, and slavery, we think primarily in the context of American issues, civil war, uh, American slavery, and those sort of related problems. And this is actually not what's going on here necessarily. Let's talk a little bit about this term for slave. As we think in Americans, when we think of slave, we think really only of this one context, right? American, I think it's often described as chattel slavery. Did I pronounce that right? I'm an editor. I don't speak these things. I just edit them, make sure they're spelled right chattel slavery. But the term for slave, doulos, in the Greek and in the time of Christ, was much broader, had a much broader range of meaning. Of course, it could mean some type of chattel slavery, but it could also describe somebody who has voluntarily entered into this bondservant nature, like somebody who has agreed to be a slave, but also has great status. I mean, slaves could, in the time of of Christ, in the time of this writing, could own property. They could own other slaves. They could could actually be fairly high-ranking in the government as well. So there's this broad range of meanings that Paul has here related to slave and this distinction that we see really as Americans, we see this like wide chasm between the term slave and the term servant, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas that wasn't so broad and obvious at the time that, that this was this was written. So the fundamental distinction here that needs to be brought up, whether you're using the term slave or bondservant, these people were not free. Like the bondservant, the slave was property, right? Now, of course, they weren't all traded horribly as we would uh, see in in American slavery. But that was the the general idea. They were bound, they were property, they were owned. But later on, and I think we're actually going to get to this in the next question, this is why Paul used the term, precisely because they're understood as property. And as we think of our own slavery to sin, uh, what does Christ do? He frees us, and then we become slaves to something else, right? We become the property, the ownership of God himself rather than, than our sins. So that's kind of what's underlying this whole thing. But under this, he does say, from that broad range of meanings, he says, obey what are you to do? You are to obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Not as not by way of eye service as people pleasers, not just to to make it look good, but actually within your own heart, right? Obey in joy and happiness as though you were obeying Christ, okay, from the will of God. So that's the idea here. I don't know if I answered all the questions, but that's kind of the idea here. We probably should move on to the next one. <laughs> all right, question three. <laughs> Read Ephesians 6, verse 9. What obligations does the master have toward his slaves? How does this color our understanding of slave? How else does St. Paul use the word slave? See Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. All right, so Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this is a, has a similar echo to Paul's command to husbands and wives as well. I did want to note, actually, I meant to bring this up in the previous question about uh, uh, children. Note that with children and bondservants, the term is not submit, but obey, right? It has a different mm. sense of like actual obedience and to, rather than submission. So uh, we have this in mind here. Um, slaves are to be obedient to their masters. But just as husbands have a responsibility to their wives as a consequence of this ordering, 
Just as fathers have responsibility to their children, a duty to their children that is actually quite quite heavy and weighty as a consequence of their children ordering their lives under their fathers, so also masters have a duty and a weighty duty to their slaves as well, right? And this is where we understand Paul's order here for slaves to be obedient to their masters is not in the context of violent violation of the fifth commandment type slavery, but rather one he's commanding masters here to care for their servants, right? They have a duty and obligation to provide for them. Stop your threatening, right? The fact is that these masters themselves are within the hierarchy too, right? You have God, their master sits at the top. They are within the hierarchy. Their slaves are underneath them, but they belong in the hierarchy as well. And so they can't just go and treat them horribly. And and so then once again, uh, the last question here is talking about the other uses of the word slave. That's from Romans chapter six. We touched on that briefly just a minute ago where Paul talks about being slaves to sin. When Christ redeems us, he purchases us, buys us from our slavery and then we become slaves of righteousness, that is, slaves of God. So we are not, in fact, totally and completely free to be our own, but rather we are slaves slaves of God. We are his own possession rather than simply, or rather than the possession of our sins. So that's kind of the idea there. Slaves, still slaves. All right, question four. How many minutes do I have left here? About six. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Question four. Read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 11. Who is the source of the Christian's might? What does the phrase in the Lord point to? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so that's Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. And we're not going to be able to get through all of this, obviously. So I want to just bring out the major point here in this whole section with the armor of God is not about the Christian's stand or the Christian's activity, I should say, in spiritual warfare. So often this passage is treated like Navy SEAL camp for spiritual combat, right? And so you're going to pick up this and it's going to help you do this in this battle. And right, the whole sense of this entire passage is actually quite passive, right? He is simply ordering you to stand firm. And then what do you stand in? You stand, in fact, in God's own armor, right? And it is one of the other questions we're not going to get to is what is the nature of this weaponry? It is primarily defensive weaponry. It is not offensive weaponry weapon or even the spirit or the sword of the spirit there's a good argument to make that this is primarily a defensive tool right so this is not about you going out and winning spiritual battles the fact of the matter is the spiritual battle has already been won in Christ Jesus he's the one that wields the broadsword that that vanquishes the foe and destroys satan and wins the battle right the armor you wear is his own armor that he has equipped you and he is simply saying stand firm as he goes forth and wins the battle for you so that's the whole sense of this passage And that's what leads us then to the answer. This first question is, what is the source of the Christian's might? It is in the Lord. The Lord is the strength. It is the Lord's might and his strength, right? Now, this phrase, in the Lord, is a phrase that occurs throughout Ephesians. We've talked about it a handful of times. And it's a reference, once again, to how we are brought into the Lord. That is specifically in the waters of holy baptism. Now, notice when we talk about the waters of holy baptism being covered in a robe of Christ's righteousness, we have a corollary, a similar way of speaking here when we talk about the armor of God, right? He is wrapping you, clothing you in his own armor as he then sends you out to stand firm in preparation for this battle. Now, the schemes, I also want to mention really quickly, the schemes of the devil. This is actually the next question. I was preparing for this and realized I asked this question at the wrong point. The schemes of the devil refers to how the devil works and his schemes, his chief weapon against the church is in fact false doctrine. It's false teaching. That's the deceitful scheming, right? We see throughout the scriptures also referenced in Ephesians as well. The chief enemy of the church is Satan and his chief tool is propagating and spreading false doctrine. 
So do we want to do question five, or did you just answer that? Actually, no, we do need to do a chapter, a question five. Let's okay. go to question five. All right. Read Ephesians 6, verses 12 through 13. Who is the chief enemy of the church? What tools does this enemy use against the church? So we already answered that question, but the verses are important. So we're going to talk about mm. the verses, because I put the questions in the wrong verses. Oops. So, <laughs> For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Okay, so the chief enemy, as we said earlier, is the devil. And St. Paul elaborates on this in verses 12 and 13. And he talks about the fact that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's sometimes hard for us to remember, especially as we see the things going on in the political sphere and the cultural sphere. We get to thinking that our primary battle is with those that we disagree with on a political level or those we disagree with on a cultural level. Paul is asking you to take a step back and realize, no, the one who is underneath all of this, who is who is attacking the church and trying to destroy the church, is in fact the devil. And he does this through rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness. Now, this is not referring to people, but is in fact referring to Satan and his minions, these demons that that attack the world. And you can see this when he says the spiritual forces of evil over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, This is not when he talks about them being in the heavenly places, an attempt to scare his hearers into thinking, oh, there's demons everywhere, but rather to realize he's actually limiting their scope and their dominion. Where is their only place of dominion? only here on this earth, in this world. That is the only thing. And that's where heavenly places here does not refer to heaven, eternal bliss in heaven, rather refers to the lower heavens, right? He talks in Ephesians, earlier in Ephesians, about the prince of the power of the air, right? So these are the ones, the demons that follow the prince of the power of the air. These are limited to this dominion, to this world. Christ has already won the victory. He will overcome them. Though they have a temporary control here now, they will not last forever. They are limited to this place. And when the last day comes, he will destroy this heavens and this earth and give us a new heaven and a new earth. So this is actually, in some sense, a word of comfort. I remember, I don't know, do you remember the horror fiction of the 1990s, this present darkness with the Frank Peretti and this mm-hmm. sort of stuff, where they use this kind of thing to like terrify you into Christian horror, which is just kind of an obnoxious idea, frankly. I don't know how that works. This is not how this is intended. This is actually a word of comfort to say their, la- their domain is limited. Christ has, has already conquered them. Question six. Do we have time? We'll make it work. Let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter six, verses 14 to 18. Are most of the elements of armor offensive or defensive? What does this tell us about our role in the fight against the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh? Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so we'll move through this pretty quick here. We have this armor. It's given in kind of three groups, right? Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel, and then you have shield, helmet, and sword. So there's kind of two groupings of three there. Each, you see throughout here, allusions to Isaiah, where we see God actually equipping himself for combat. So the first one really takes place with the belt of truth. This is, you can look in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, where Isaiah talks about the righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, speaking 
of the servant, right, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins, right? So here they're girding up, preparing for battle with the belt of Christ is our truth. That truth is given to us, placed upon us in the waters of baptism, and this truth is the truth that, sent us, that is sent out and defeats Satan, right? Uh, breastplate of righteousness. This protects the major vital organs. It's one of the most important pieces of armor that the, the uh, they had in combat at this time. Protects the organs. We still use this, you know, body armor typically is used to protect these major vital organs. So also the doctrine of justification of the sinner, that we are declared righteous by God is the central teaching of the church. And this is what protects and keeps us safe, right? Feet shod with the gospel. Here, uh, we can actually go back to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. Jesus Christ himself, right? Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. Uh, So also the Christian stands firm, shod with this gospel of peace. Interesting quick note, which you probably don't have time for, but we're going to do it anyways. They used to drive nails through the soles of the shoe down through so the nails stuck out the bottom, kind of like modern day cleats, so that when they were in battle, it would like sink into the ground. It would help them stand firm. Isn't that great? That's cool. Okay, moving on. Shield. (laughs) This is a large oblong shield. The term here is not for the small shield like you would use in offensive combat, but this is a defensive shield. They would often soak these shields in water because what the Romans would do is they would dip, dip arrows in pitch, light the arrows, and then they would shoot it. If it was a shield that was just a wooden shield that wasn't dipped in water, it would light, then they'd have to get rid of it. Well, if they soaked it in water, it would extinguish the darts of the evil one, right? Once again, connections to baptism abound. We could do that more if we need to. All right, helmet of salvation. Here, the passage says, take the helmet of salvation. This is not a great translation. It would be better to say, receive. Once again, this is all passive. This is all given. Receive the helmet of salvation, right? Once again, we also have a connection to Isaiah one more time. Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation on his head, right? Once again, this is God's armor. And then finally, the sword of the spirit. Mentioned this briefly already. This was a fair argument to be made that this is actually a defensive weapon. But the key here is the Holy Spirit is not the weapon itself. What is the weapon? The Word of God, right? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the Spirit's sword, and that is the Word of God. All right. One more. We're going to do it? All right. Read Ephesians 6, 18 through 24. Compare the ending of Ephesians with the rest of St. Paul's letters. Why does St. Paul conclude his letters in this way? What differences do you notice? Similarities. All right. Final greetings from Paul here. But actually, we're going to say this begins a little bit earlier at verse 18. One of the things, we've talked about this a number of times too, punctuation was not in the original Greek. So where the sentence ends and where a new sentence begins is a little up for interpretation in terms of the translation. <laughs> so here there's a fair argument to be made that the ending actually occurs here at verse 17 of the previous section. And we have this kind of final greetings beginning at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, St. Paul writes, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Once again, keep in mind that this epistle would have been read in the divine service. And this closing is really Paul's way of ensuring, letting them know that he is present among them through the preaching of this epistle, through the proclamation of this word. And he does this in all of his epistles, but he does it in different ways. I, we actually don't have time to go through all the different ways. I put this in there so that you all who are listening would spend some time flipping through the apostles and the endings and comparing them to see how he would, how he ends them and why he does it that way. And to kind of give that some thought. The point here is he's 
declaring his presence among them, and he's doing this in three ways. He's doing this in, in, in a request to them for prayer, for his proclamation, the work that he's doing as an ambassador in chains, as a prisoner in Rome. And then he's also giving them his presence through the sending of Tychicus, the beloved brother, right, who will report on everything that's going on with Paul, the physical example of the presence of Paul, right? As Paul represents Christ to the people as a pastor, so also Tychicus here is representing Paul to these people and establishing once again his fellowship, his connection to them. And then finally, he gives them the apostolic blessing, his last way of saying, I'm here among you in the proclamation of this word as Christ himself is here among us as well. How do we find Lutheran Witness? <laughs> Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org. You can read our online content, but then if you go to the subscription page, you can figure out how to subscribe as well. Very good. Thank you so much for a great year of searching the scripture with us. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.